Good morning. We're so glad that you joined us today. Uh, wow. Finally, we have some people to preach to here. So for you that are uh, watching, uh, tuning in with us, uh, live streaming today, it's going to be so exciting. It already is so exciting for me to see some people in our building and uh, glad that you tuned in with us as well. Our folks here are all masked up, and so we want to invite you over the next several weeks to come and join us if you feel safe to do so. I uh, hope many of you received the information uh, at your homes about our restarting and uh, the different protocols that are involved in that. But I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles. Johnny, where is your Bible today? Did you bring your Bible? Oh, you got it on your phone. Okay, very good. Grab your Bibles, and we're going to be looking today at Job chapter 9 and Job chapter number 10. Job chapter 9 and Job chapter 10. One of the great op op opportunities that we have studying the book of Job is to watch, to watch life transformation. I love that. I love that about the Bible. I love watching what happened to the Samaritan woman at the well and how her life was transformed and changed. I love the opportunity to watch the life of Peter, don't you? I mean, Peter. I mean, all the things that God did for the life, through the life of Peter. Or John, how God changed him. But as we look at the life of Job, what an incredible opportunity that we have to see him just right before our eyes changing. Now, I think it's important to understand that uh, there are three sets of three conversations that are going on with Job and his friends. There were um, three friends, as we have looked at those over the last several weeks. And in doing so, um, these friends didn't come just one way or two ways, but three different times they have these dialogues with him. And in doing so, each time they try to bring their best analysis of why all of these heartaches are happening and occurring to Job. We talked over the last couple of weeks about traditionalism was one of those, and legalism was one of those answers. And so old Job was really, really struggling. He was, he was searching for the right answer. Why is all of this heartache befallen in my life? My children are gone. My fame and my fortune, they're gone. And the difficulties that have come upon me are like a weight. They're just weighting my life down. And in doing so, when we come to uh, chapter 9 and 10, we have the privilege of doing something that's really amazing. We have the opportunity to grab one of the great biblical truths in all the Bible that's really offered up to us in a setting that we would not expect. Have you ever stopped to think that as we work through our Old Testament, there are just a few of these rare opportunities that come along that we're able to be able to see a prophetic glimpse of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other little snapshots that we have in our Old Testament that give us this privilege of being able to see kind of a precursor for the kingdom of God and what God is going to do as a whole in lives to come. And today we have that rare fortune to be able to see this. Some of those incredible places, my favorite book of the Bible, as you know, is the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, there's that moment that the wings of refuge began to open up. And we are prophetically told that there's one that's coming like the wings of refuge. It's going to cover us and protect us. And we know that's an incredible forecast, a prophetic utterance of the coming of our Lord and Savior. We have the opportunity in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, to see a big old hunk of clay. 
thrown down on a potter's wheel to be a living example and a prophetic utterance about the work that the Lord Jesus is going to be doing in lives. And today we have one of those rare opportunities. It's incredible. Where there's the utterance of Job that gives us kind of the unfolding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Several thousand years ago and several thousand years before the, even the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in a little manger, we have this forecast. So I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles as we look in Job chapter number 9. And uh, as we do so, uh, Job is going back and forth talking to these friends. In this particular case, he is giving rebuttal or answering Bildad, one of those three friends. And in our Bibles, in Job chapter number 9, we begin to see some responses that Job offers up. Job offers up three responses to the misery of his life, to the difficulties and the hardships and the suffering that he's been walking through. He's heard around and paraged from these friends, and now he's going to respond. He has some of his own thoughts, and it's out of that set of responses that you and I are going to have this privilege, this rare opportunity to see what's going on in terms of a transformation in the heart and the life of Job. I want you to notice as we begin reading in chapter number 9, there's going to be three clear responses that Job gives. Job, first of all, is going to speak out of a challenge, the challenge that he's facing of what we know as justification. How is all of this to be reconciled? this misery, this hardship, this God that he worships, how do, those th how do those things begin to come together? In fact, in Job chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, there's not much to verse 1, is there? It just simply says three words, then Job replied. And in verse 2, the Bible says, indeed, I know that this is true. But how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Job is just reiterating something he's already said. Hey, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I've made some mistakes in my life. I have committed transgression and sin. But in doing so, I want you to know that the, the very portion of my life that I feel like I'm being penalized, I think in that particular case, I'm innocent. I feel like I walk a fairly blameless life. I feel like I'm a God-fearing man. And in doing so, is, is that reason to lose 10 children? To have all of your herds, a lifetime of work, be stricken from you? I mean, is that really equal justice? And Job is searching and he's looking for answers. But as we continue to look in the ninth chapter, go down to verse number four, and we start to see out of this challenge of justification, we begin to see his thinking process, and that's what's so valuable to us. We're able to kind of sense his heart, feel what he's experiencing. One of the things that I joked about speaking to someone yesterday, I called one of our members yesterday on the phone, and I just uh, was checking on him, and I said, hey, uh, I called today, and he's in a, a, a crafts trade, not crafts like crafts, but uh, he works on homes, and he's kind of a carpenter by trade, and I was just sharing with him, hey, I just called to check on you. Immediately when I called him, he said, Pastor, what do you need? I thought that was an interesting response. I mean, that was the first thing he said. What do you need? Because all of his life, 
or at least these last 30 years, just about every time he's ever picked up the phone, someone has needed something on the other end. I've got this problem. I need you to look at this. Can you fix this? Can you repair this? So yesterday, in rare exception, rare form, I just simply said, hey, I called you today not because I need anything. I just called you to tell you I loved you. And it was like he was in complete shock. You, you just called to tell me you love me? That's right. You know, I understand how he feels. Because so often when my phone goes off, there's a crisis. There's, there is a marriage that's in bad shape. There's a body laying somewhere. There's a heartache or a heartbreak. There's collapse or crisis. And so it's so very rare for me for someone to call to say, hey, pastor, just called you today. Didn't need anything. Everything's great in our lives. But today I just called to check on you. Wow. And you know, we have that privilege to watch this thinking process unfolding. Look down in verse 4 as Job works through this challenge of justification. Listen to his words. Job chapter 9, verse 4. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains, verse 5, without knowing, and he overturns them in his anger. It's like we're starting to see the power of how Job understands God. Look in verse 6. He shakes the earth from its place. It makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. Look in verse 10. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Immediately, Job begins to allow us to see the inner workings of his heart. He understands that it's, it's, it's really useless to try to resist God. I mean, I mean... He begins to remind us that all we have to do is look around at creation and we begin to see very clearly and quickly that we know there's a God that exists. I mean, God created all these things. We know there's a powerful God because he has I mean, complete control of everything that he has created. But you see, we begin to see and identify a quick problem out of this justification Job just speaks his heart and says, you know what? One of the biggest challenges I have is that God really is not like me. I mean, we, we understand Imago Dei. We're created in his image. But we also come to an understanding very early in our lives, we're not God. We can't do the things that God can do. That natural separation begins to come to the forefront. And I love this because it's just real life. Several times in my ministry, people have asked me, Pastor, do you really believe the Bible is true? Well, that's a foolish question to ask me. But uh, obviously, I believe that the Bible is true. People will fire off different things. Well, how do you deal with this mistake? And all kinds of things people have thrown at me through the years. But you know, one of the great reckonings in my own heart and life about knowing that the Bible is true, is we're able to see the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great, and the good, and all those things mixed together. And it's just, I mean, the Bible just lays it out like it is. And I love that as I hear Job beginning to wrestle with the why part. And he's asking the question in terms of justification, 
Why me? But more importantly, he begins to see something very important. He begins to understand the first big dilemma of justification, that God and I are not on equal planes. That becomes an obvious picture. Look down in verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Look in verse number, uh, move all the way down to verse 21. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. Job is saying there's parts of my own soul that I didn't even know existed. Now understand, Job never denies being a sinner. Job never anywhere in the book of Job gives us the indication that he feels like he is spotless, pure, and perfect. What Job, I mean, when he, when he responds about himself, he says, I, I, again, I know there have been missteps. But he's working through this whole justification concept. In fact, we see time and time again that Job even admits to being a sinner by the very nature that he was born into. We know our Bible teaches us about the true nature of the heart. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9? The Bible says what? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And, and it's beyond what? It's beyond a cure. And he begins to lay out the second of those big problems with justification. My sins, he begins to start to connect the dots. My transgressions have caused a separation from me and from God. But look down in verse number 30, 30 and 31. He continues to wrestle with this justification. Even if I wash myself with soap. Now he gets pretty specific. And my hands. Man, we're in a hand-washing time right now in our nation, aren't we? And they tell us as quickly as we wash them, there's already germs reattaching themselves. And so hand lotion is a very big part of our life now as well. We're trying to wash away those germs. It's as if mankind tries to wash away the sins of his life. And he says, I'm a, I'm a sinner by nature. Verse 31, even if you would plunge me into the slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Now, he doesn't mention here any specific sins. He just is referencing his very sinful nature. And he happens upon this last problem with justification. You know, he just says, I've got a real issue. I cannot relate to God without some type of go-between, some type of mediator. And you see, Job is coming to the understanding that so many people have got to arrive at the same place when they are searching for the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And for you and I to have this privilege thousands of years before the coming of Christ, to be able to sit historically and watch this unfold, it gives us such a brilliant picture of the salvation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to show you a second thing as Job is wrestling through these different issues. Look down in verse number 32. Job doesn't just talk about the challenge of justification, but he shares this out of his heart. Job begins to speak for the need of mediation. He understands that he, he and God are, are not alike. 
He, he understands there's a, there's a sin chasm between he and God and holiness and the transgressions that he has committed. And he's starting to get the sense in his life there needs to be a mediator. There needs to be somebody that can attach me and help me be better connected to my holy God. Who would that be? How would that unfold? And so in verse 32, Job says this, He is not a mere mortal, speaking of God like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Look in verse 33. Can I just stop and tell you? One of the three or four big moments in all of these 40-plus chapters of Job. We're about to read one of the big three or four out of this entire book. It's an incredible, moving statement. Verse 33 says, If only there were someone, someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Now, in the New International Version, which I'm reading from, we see the word a mediate, a mediator. The New American Standard uses the word umpire. You can go to the King James language. It also has a great term for this as it it translates this a daysman. Now understand in these early Hebrew days, a daysman was a cross between what we know as a mediator and an arbitrator. We know that in mediation, someone sits down in a non-binding environment. Man, our local attorneys would be so proud of me in our church. A non-binding arrangement or agreement. They would do all they can to bring the people to some type of consensus. But you may get up from that table and there may not be anything finally accomplished or resolved. In arbitration, you go with an agreement. We'll both plead our cases and our sides, but this arbitrator will have the, what? The power to resolve it at the table. And both sides know that. Both sides know, hey, we may not get this or there may be some give and take. And so maybe mediation is a safer environment for us to resolve this than go to arbitration. Arbitration can be binding. But understand in these early Hebrew days, when they had different difficulties, problems they couldn't resolve, they would bring in a daysman. And a daysman would come in and he would listen to both sides. And then before he pronounced judgment, he would have the parties kneel and he would lay his hands on their heads. And when he laid those hands on the heads, he was symbolically letting them know and again, in a, in, in a symbolized way, hey, I have the authority to resolve. I am the one that's here to be the one that goes between you two, these two challenges, these two sides of a problem, and whatever I remedy, that will be the answer. That will be what you must live your life by. It will be resolved in that way or that manner. And so all of these words are great words. A mediator to mediate, an umpire. Now, I come out of a coaching background. Many of you know that. So I'm not going to give you any umpire stories. But man, one of the great pastimes in America, especially when it comes to baseball. Hey, you know, we are so sports starved right now. I even hear wives looking forward to sports coming back. That's how tough times are. I never thought I would ever hear that. But you know, when baseball returns, one of the great pastimes is let's beat up on the umpire. 
let's, uh, let's make the umpire look as bad as possible. And here we have that definition or that understanding. I need someone to stand in the gap between us. And you know, the wonderful picture is we have not just the Old Testament where Job is recorded, but we have the New Testament as well. We have the words of Paul when he was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. We know who that daysman is. We know who that umpire is. We know who that mediator is. Paul wrote these words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator among God and mankind, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, that's a big statement. Theologically, Joe brings us to a key moment in all of our lives that know the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe today for some that are not at that place where you have received this very mediator between you and God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In that verse that we just read from Timothy, we're reminded of those important words, aren't we? One mediator between God and mankind. He was the man, Jesus Christ. We know incarnation was such an important part of this mediation, this umpiring act. John 1, uh, 1 and verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Colossians 2, 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We come to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and our New Testament tells us it was the Lord Jesus. He appeared in the flesh. And you know, we see that all the way through our Bibles, don't we? We see it at, that, at Jacob's well. I mentioned a moment ago about the Samaritan woman. We see our Lord and Savior in that moment as a man, a physical man, thirsty and says, woman, bring me a drink. But we see him in activity as God bringing what? A new type of eternal life into her heart where she would never thirst again. We see this as an example at the moment when Jesus arrived at the tomb of Lazarus. And the Bible says he stood there and he wept. As a man, he cried. But then we hear those incredible words Come forth, Lazarus. It was God speaking. The power over death itself. Come forth. It was in that moment when our Lord and Savior was in the boat during a torrential storm and rainfall and wind and lightning and thunder. When as a man, he slept. But as God, he spoke into the seas and said, Quieten, be still. It was in that moment on the cross that we saw as a man, he stretched out those arms in agony and physically died. But it was in the moment that he came forth from the tomb that we see the other side of that, the God act, the God in him. How do we describe this incarnation? I don't know that we can. But we know that our Lord and Savior was God and man and man and God. What an incredible picture. But you know, that verse didn't just give us a picture of his incarnation. Listen to it again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself 
1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom from all people. It wasn't just about him being able to be the mediator because he was God-man, the incarnation, but he was a great substitution. He gave himself as a ransom. Wow. We see this unfolding in the life of Job. What a, what a moving moment for him to come to this understanding of how do I justify this? Of justification. And then the challenge of mediation. I'm going to need someone to bridge that gap. He just had no idea, did he? That the Lord Jesus was on his way. I want you to turn with me quickly. I want to show you one other response out of Job's life today. Turn with me over to chapter number 10. And scroll down to verse number 8, because I want you to see that Job is going to speak out of a blessing of affirmation. He's going to speak out of a blessing of affirmation. Look in verse 8. Job says, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and, des and destroy me? Question mark. Remember in verse 9 that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Even in the midst of this heartache, Job now is beginning to, to understand more and more of the picture. No, he'll never understand completely. He'll never have the whole picture. Even we feel like upon his death, apart from God giving him some type of insight that we don't have scriptural record of, it appears that Job went to his very death still not fully understanding all of the heartache and suffering and misery that he had to experience. But what we get to see is these little snapshots of moments in Job's life that he's began to understand. See, that's the real challenge of, of suffering and misery, isn't it? There's the real challenge of heartache. What is the meaning of life? What value do we have? What purpose do we have? It's that that we bring our why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening now? How is this happening? And again, we start to see in Job's heart and life that maybe, just maybe, this heartache has some reason that he's not aware of. He's asking God, God, would you create me? Would you put a piece of clay down and make a masterful pot out of it, some type of pottery, only to just completely destroy it and throw it down? Could there be some reason? Could there be some rationale to that? Look down in verse number 12 in chapter 10. And then listen to these words. Job gave me life. And he showed me hesed out of the Hebrew language. He showed me kindness. And in your, in your providence, you watched over my spirit. Look in verse 13. But this is what you concealed in your heart. And I know that this was in your mind. You see, Job now begins to just reaffirm that affirmation element God, I, I do sense in the midst of my heartache that you do love me. And could it be that in your heart of hearts, Lord, that you desire really something good to come from this suffering, out of this heartache? All the while, Job had no idea about the plan that was going on behind the scenes. But what he does know 
is that there is a God that loves him. And it's that love and that care and that sense of affirmation that we began to see pouring out of Job's life. You know, in the day and time that we live in, you know, this past week has been a real difficult time for me personally. As um, one, of, one of the men that I have just really loved in our fellowship went on to be with the Lord this past week. And just talking to their family, all the challenges that, that, that go in. You know, I mean, it's, it's tough to minister to any family during any time, but to have so many people that are arm's length, non-touchable, I just don't think people really fully, well, maybe, maybe we do after seven or eight weeks of this craziness. Maybe we're starting to get a sense of what people contact really means in our life. That personal touch, how much we value it, how much we miss it. But you know, in, 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 in the midst of these challenges, what, what I sense is that the missing commodity is hope. And we start to see the hope meter creep up. And I got to tell you, as we work through the book of Job, we're going to see it creep back down. And we'll see Job's hope creep back up. And we'll see it creep back down again. And that's why watching and studying and living life through the eyes of Job is so valuable to us. Because you and I, our faith meter at times goes up and comes back down. Our hope meter goes up at times and comes back down. But across our country today, that's the missing commodity, hope. And Americans are afraid. I remind you, it was our Lord and Savior that said in Luke chapter 21 and verse 26, in the last days, people will fall because of their fear. And it's important for us to understand that if we're walking through something today where we're afraid where we are in pain or we're lonely or we're suffering, we need to be reminded there is hope. And that hope is in this daysman, this umpire, this mediator that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, can I just say, you that are sitting here with your mask on, you're a great hope to me. Maybe there are those that are going to be returning to join you in the coming weeks. As fear begins to subside, let's take a moment this morning and pray that once again America will return to the very one that we so need to be locked into every day of our life, but especially in these days in our nation. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to thank you for these few moments to look into the life of Job. Father, could there be someone today that can hear my voice that is also just struggling, struggling with this concept of what we know as justification? How do you reconcile suffering and heartache? And how do you, how do you work through this, these challenges of overcoming difficult days? And Father, understanding that our Lord and Savior came to be that very bridge that could connect us, sinful beings, to a holy God. And Father, today I pray that the Lord Jesus 
would be the very one that would bring a sense of affirmation into hearts all across this country, hearts in our church fellowship, hearts that are lonely and struggling, hearts that are facing difficult days. Father, I pray for those families in our church that are out of work and those across our nation and the world today that are struggling with some type of financial challenge. Those that have lost loved ones and they're trying at this very moment to figure out, hey, at what cost was this? Some, their heads are still swimming just a few weeks ago, a completely healthy individual, and now they're gone. Father, could there be? Could there be a plan? Could there be something going on that we can't see, that we can't tangibly touch? Could your mighty hand be at work in our nation, in our world? Father, could the real message of Job for our church family be that there's so much going on spiritually that we're not aware of, that we can't see? But that we, once again, are to be those agents that are willing to trust. Father, thank you for speaking through our hearts, not just hundreds from a story hundreds of years ago, but a story of a man that lived thousands of years ago. Father, could his story, could his historical moments be the catalyst to start a seed in our heart to be rekindled? to remember that really this journey of life is all about faith. Trusting and trusting and trusting. Trusting that in the end, end, when we breathe our last breath, that your word is true, that you will bring us to be where you are. Trusting that for all the things that we face, for those those of us that love you, you will bring something good out of those even difficult moments. So Father, with this in mind, we go into yet another week masked, washing, somewhat fearful. Father, in yet another week, that we're called on to trust you. And Father, trust we will. You are our daysman. Lay your hands on us and anoint us and let us know that your word and your will will be the final way. Lay your hands on us so we might be able to sense your very presence. Lay your hands on us so we can feel the warmth of your compassion. Father, we love you and we worship you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name.